Hello and welcome back to Off-Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. On today's episode, we'll be discussing The Green Knight. The Green Knight is a 2021 film directed and written by David Lowry. The film is based on the Arthurian tale Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which was first recorded as a poem in a 14th century English manuscript. In both the original poem and in the film, the story follows Gawain, a nephew of King Arthur, who undertakes a quest to face the Green Knight and fulfill a promise made one year prior. Along the way, Gowan experiences strange and magical trials and tribulations. On today's episode, we delve into the history behind the Green Knight, including the origins of Arthurian legends, how and why the movie differs from the original poem, and how the movie portrays the medieval world. To discuss all this with me, I'm joined by Morgan Moore. Morgan is a PhD student at the University of Toronto's Centre for Medieval Studies. Her research is about the relationship between performance and manuscripts in medieval England and Wales. As part of that expertise, she knows a lot about Arthurian tales generally, and the Sir Gawain and the Green Knight poem particularly. We've got a great episode for you today, so let's get into it. Excited to welcome onto the podcast a friend of mine from the U of T, Morgan Moore. Morgan, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Could you please introduce yourself to the listeners and, and tell us a little bit about your research topic? Absolutely. So my name is Morgan Moore. I'm a fourth year PhD student at the University of Toronto. I'm doing my degree in medieval studies with a focus on manuscript studies and sort of verse from medieval England and Wales in performance. So drama, performed poetry, sort of the nebulous overlap between the two, and how those things are preserved in manuscripts um, so that we can still study them, you know, 800 years later. Mm -hmm. And Lewis, you and I got to know each other doing sort of book history and, and manuscript studies. So so that's where that's where that came from. Mm -hmm. But I also have a background in medieval Welsh literature, and I'm, I'm really excited. I have an MA in medieval Welsh literature. So that's partly where I where I come to this topic about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, because I've had to take a bunch of Arthurian literature and Arthurian legends classes, including on the, the Welsh dimension. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's just one of those things that you cannot avoid. It's, it's everywhere. It's so exciting to um, finally get to talk about it. And I had a bunch of papers I could read where I like wrote, went back to see what undergrad me wrote about <laughs> Sir Gawain. It was really funny. <laughs> That's cool. That's really fun. Yeah. I've been wanting to watch this movie for a, a while, basically since it came out, but I didn't want to go to any movie theaters at the time. But when I, I thought this would be a great podcast episode, and you were the obvious guest for, for this episode. Yay. So, obviously we're talking about The Green Knight. Let's briefly summarize the plot of the movie The Green Knight for listeners who haven't seen it. And this will be, if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want to hear spoilers... This is now spoiler territory. Sure. So in the movie, we start with a sort of young, inexperienced character named Gawain, played by Dev Patel, and he's not been knighted yet. I think that they try to make that kind of clear in the film is that he's he's not had his adventure. He's sort of still a, I don't know, teen or early 20s, like inexperienced guy. Mm -hmm. And he's just kind of carousing in, you know, I think he's in a brothel in the first scene. Yeah. He's not really on an adventure yet. 
it's Christmas also, which makes it very appropriate that we're recording this now, actually, because this all sort of takes place in the, in the Christmas season. Mm-hmm. And there's suddenly at the Christmas feast, he's at King Arthur's court because he's King Arthur's nephew. And suddenly at the, at the Christmas feast, there's this creature who arrives in the middle of the, of the feast who is a larger than life sized sort of giant character who is wearing green armor on a green horse and his skin and his hair are green. And we get the sense that this person is, has been sort of summoned because there's some, there's a scene of like Arthur uh, Gowan's mother doing some sort of magic incantation or summoning to sort of create this, this adventure for her son. But anyway, this green knight walks up in the middle of the Christmas feast and there is a moment where he issues a challenge and it, it's a game. It's an offer to play a game, but that obviously has a slightly different connotation when it's something a little sinister. Mm-hmm. But the game that he wants to play with anybody who is daring enough to take him up on it is sort of a physical, a, a physical contest of using a massive axe that he has, like a, a, a big green axe. And he's like, I will, I will take whatever blow that the challenger can give me with this axe. And the only rule is that I will turn around and do the same to them one year from now. And obviously they don't really know what's going on. They don't really know how they're supposed to react to this, but Gawain basically is, I think kind of peer pressured or it feels like Arthur is kind of asking him, you know, wouldn't you, wouldn't you take this? Wouldn't the honorable thing be to take this? So he takes this challenge and he, he cuts off the green knight's head with the axe and it's just a you know very very violent very sort of dramatic moment and then of course because it's magic the green knight picks up his head and is still alive and is like cool see you in a year and gowan is now left with the the repercussions of this game that he has decided to play where he has to now be ready to take on you know whatever whatever the next blow is and he has a year to sort of think about this and get ready and does he want to show up in a year and like be there and be ready to receive the the green knight's blow but so he has some adventures he does some traveling he encounters along his way some more magic and some more sort of interesting scenes that we can talk about like get into some of the things that he goes through on his trip but basically mm-hmm. he ends up a year to the like a year from from the day back in the wilderness and he's been trying to find the green knight and he has this sort of overnight in a weird castle where the Lord and lady like offer to put him up for the night. And while he's there, he has in, in the movie, it's one sort of sexual, like romantic engagement with the lady of the castle. And then the next day he goes out and finds the green knight and the green knight like is basically goes, okay, you, you want to go? And we have this weird sort of flash forward moment. Oh, I didn't mention, I didn't mention the girdle. Anyway, so Sir Gawain like envisions what's going to happen, what his life be like if he doesn't commit to being beheaded, and then he decides in the last moment he's going to, you know, take give away his magical protection that he had gotten from his mother and from the lady, which is also complicated. Mm-hmm. And he basically surrenders to the Green Knight and says like, "Okay, I'm I'm here. I've made my choice." And then it cuts immediately, and that's the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the movie ends with the Green Knight saying, okay, now off with your head. And we don't actually see what happens next. We don't. We don't get to know. No. Which is intentionally ambiguous. I found a, an interview with David Lowry about that, 
I should mention David Lowry is both the director and he wrote the screenplay for, yeah. for the film. And it's so interesting. I feel like some of the choices that David Lowry made in writing the screenplay tell you a lot about him as a person. Interesting. <laughs> there are some things that he changes and some reasons that he gives for why he changes them or why he adds certain things that you're like, oh, okay, David. Interesting. interesting. I'm, I'm interested to hear those. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll get into some of those changes and, and why, why he made those in a little bit. Mm-hmm. I want to hear a little bit about the source material for the movie. The film is based on the story Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which comes from a, a 14th century manuscript. Yep. What do we know about, other than that this is a 14th century manuscript, what, what do we know about it? It's such a great, it's such a great little manuscript. So first of all, 14th century manuscript, it's preserved in the, I think it's in the British Library, and it's in the sort of collection that was owned by the great book collector Cotton. So it, the name for the manuscript is Cotton Nero A10 because he kept it on a shelf near a bust of Nero. Hmm. And it, it has, you know, four other poems in it, one of which is also the famous Middle English poem, The Pearl. So the unknown poet behind these works is usually called the, po- the Pearl Poet or the Gawain Poet. And the style is sort of it's in this sort of style of poetry that they refer to as like the alliterative revival, because it's not old English alliterative poetry, like Beowulf, like you think of with like really heavy consonantal alliteration, but it's, it's a revival where a couple hundred years later, people were like, oh, that was cool. Let's do that again. Hmm. But the language is more, more modern. And it, it shows like middle English developing with the influence of French and the influence of, you know, sort of Norman words. So it's closer to modern English. You can sort of understand it a little bit better if you if you squint if you read certain some of the lines are more easier to understand even untranslated but it also this particular manuscript has a very distinct sort of northern or like regional dialect in it which has helped people or helped scholars sort of theorize about where the scribe or the the poet himself themselves might have been from even though i have definitely read somebody pointed out very uh, intelligently, just because somebody writes or speaks a certain dialect doesn't mean that's where they were writing or speaking at the time. Like people can move around. Right, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So the manuscript could have been produced in London, or it could have been produced in the borderlands in like a little regional court where somebody had, you know, a wealthy family or you know territorial like court area. But the language and the the dialect that it's written in has a sort of border between Western England and Wales style, which is why this is, and in the text of the poem in Sir Gawain, he also goes traveling in the wilderness in and around the borders and in Wales and into sort of the Northern, like it, it feels, it feels very, it's a, it's called a border romance for a couple of reasons. And that's part of it is that there's this like, divide between the center like the cultural center at arthur's court and the outside world like the wild sort of outer world Hmm. which which is also where a lot of people you know people have read this as a post-colonial poem people have read this as like you know a contrast between civilization and wilderness or between man and nature or between christianity and paganism so there's a lot of like yeah but all so basically what you asked about was the manuscript and i i can just say that like we don't know quite where it was produced. We don't know quite who produced it. We don't know who it was produced for. We don't know who the poet was. Hmm. But we know that it's a rather small 
book. It's a little, it's a little manuscript and it has sort of a unassuming art in it. The people have really enjoyed dunking on the illustrations. They're like, this is terrible illumination. You're like, well, it's, you know, they did what they could. <laughs> and it's not, you know, very impressive as a book, but it was preserved very carefully and sort of in this collection for so long. And then it got lost. Like it didn't get criticized or, or edited or transcribed until quite a bit into the, the 20th century. So it got rediscovered and that was exciting. Okay. Speaking of the, the dialect yeah. that you mentioned, you also mentioned to me before we started the call that we were talking about the pronunciation of, of Gowan. Yes. And sometimes people say Gowan, sometimes people say Gawain, sometimes people say something different as well. And I was asking you about that. And, and you mentioned that actually in, in the text, there's not just one consistent usage, right? Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's so my understanding and how it's been explained to me is that essentially names in this style of poetry and words in general, but maybe names in particular, because you can't find a synonym for a name as easily as you can find a synonym for a word. So in order to fit it into a poetic meter or a po poetic sort of metrical line, you can sort of shift the shift the emphasis as needed. And so I know, for example, that in the Middle English, Gawain can also be spelled with a W. So instead of with a G, it can be Wowin if you need that W to have to match up with the like, if you're alliterating that W sound in the line, like that, that is malleable. Like names, you can, you can sort of, it, it, there's, there's some room for uh, manipulation like that. So I will probably end up defaulting to Gowan, but that putting the emphasis on the first syllable like that, I think is, is because, you know, we, we don't need it to sound, we don't need the emphasis to be on Gawain because we're not speaking in, in rhyme, in, in meter. Hmm. But if we were, you know, we could, we could, we could make some allowances for that. Um, and it happens elsewhere. And also in the poem, for example, another example of the same thing is, you know, they have the character of Guinevere. But at one point, her name is written as Gwenor, as opposed to Gwenor or Gwenor or something, Gwenivar or something. So yeah, so name, like, there's all sorts of manipulation that can happen there. Interesting. We could try to do the rest of the podcast in meter if you, you want. want to. You want to try? I think that, <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe, maybe next time. Maybe next time. Well, that's the thing. This is, this is the kind of verse that I really like because it is... It is such a, this is so based on how it would have sounded. It's so based on the, the auditory and like performance mm -hmm. aspect of it, but it's not off the cuff at all. It's like, it's performed and it's, it's what you would call like oral poetry, but it is not right. improv. You couldn't, the, the, the Sir Gawain and the Green Knight poem is so carefully composed. And there are so many like little, you know, metrical details about how it is constructed. And for example, like, I just, I feel like it's important to, it, it has a very perfect, like numerical thing where it has a, exactly 101 stanzas. Hmm. And there are, there's something crazy about like how many lines or maybe that might, that might be Pearl actually, I might be getting that mixed up with Pearl, but yeah, it's like very carefully composed. Hmm. So you would, you would definitely want to perform it out loud. You would definitely want to hear how it sounds performed out loud, but it's not the kind of thing I, at least, think 
or me personally could ever could ever improv. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. I'd like to ask you a little bit about the origins of Arthurian stories, Arthurian tales. And my first question, which I understand from you is a is a tricky question. Is there any historical basis for the person we know as as King Arthur or or anything <laughs> else about these sort of Arthurian stories? Is there any sort of like kernel of truth in in those those stories? Oh, Lewis, I'm so glad you asked this and I'm also like I just I got this question. It's been keeping me up at night just getting this question. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't no. mean for this podcast <laughs> to be I'm that kidding. kind of podcast. Short answer? No. I don't want to I don't want to break any listeners' hearts. I don't I don't think at the moment the academic community is comfortable saying there is a a real sort of known identifiable historical Arthur. But I will immediately follow that up with there has been so much work put in to figuring that out, whether there might be, and there is still more to be sort of discovered and learned and like more than I have been able to sort of quickly reacquaint myself with. So I could be eating my words, you know, soon, but my understanding and how I have been sort of trained to talk about this is that there are references to a Dux Bellorum, so like a war leader, hmm. who is written in into Nennius's Historia Britonum, which is a ninth century, I believe, source about the history of the Britons. And there are also mentions of this character that might be the source or the basis for Arthur in, you know, the writings of, of Gildas, the Excidia Britanniae, and the Annales Cumbriae, which are the Welsh chronicles, but they're all being written hundreds of years after the events that they're talking about. So they are trying to record, they're, they're trying to like chronicle history that was several centuries older. And then as mm. the chroniclers are writing, they're sort of projecting back. So it's all a little bit sort of speculative. Mm. And then you get references to certain you know, leader figures or warrior figures, and they're not necessarily kings, and they're not necessarily called Arthur, but it all kind of mishmashes together, and somebody decides, oh, hey, that's an interesting detail. I will borrow that detail, and I will borrow this name, and then you get a cool sort of mashup character, and then somebody else takes that and runs with it. So the real sort of the most influential source probably is Geoffrey of Monmouth's version where he introduces Arthur or he, he puts together Arthur as a king and leader and warrior. And this is where he gets sort of an imperial polish on him in Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain, which is a 12th century work. And he's definitely writing for, you know, a, a certain courtly audience he definitely has in mind. You know, he's stealing, not stealing, he is utilizing material, well, maybe stealing, he is, he is uh, utilizing material from Welsh and sort of traditional local like folkloric sources or traditional sources, historical sources. Many as he's like, you know, stealing a little bit from the historians as well. Hmm. But he's definitely doing his own sort of synergy with it <laughs> and is writing it for an audience of the, the, the class of French, like Norman, Anglo-Norman court 
courtier who came over to England with William the Conqueror. So he's got a little bit of a, you know, he knows who he's writing to. He's writing, he's writing about a, a, a really impressive imperial character who like conquers a lot of Europe. And also in this version of Arthur, he like conquers Rome hmm. just because he's that cool. And there is somebody pointed out, you know, in the 17th century that like, if Arthur had done that and had actually done all of the conquering that Geoffrey says he did, places like Rome would have some record of it and they don't. That's what, that was my thought. Yeah. 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 (laughs) But just Arthur is, is so, and he's got material from the, from the Welsh tradition as well. So like we have a name, we have the name Arthur shows up in one of the very, very most famous Welsh poems, the Gadawdden, which is about a doomed battle that warriors went to out of loyalty and none of them survived or some of them survived, but basically none of them survived. Mm. And like Arthur's name shows up there and there's, you know, various theories about where the name Arthur comes from. People have argued or have thought that it might be a Roman name or might have some, some like connection to a character from the Black Sea region that, you know, there's a Samartian theory where it could be Arturius or something, hmm. or maybe it's a Welsh name. Maybe it's from, hmm. you know, the Welsh word for bear is Arth. So Arthur is a sort of Welsh name that means like, you know, bear. So maybe he's a Welsh war- warrior. And hmm. like all of these things are contributing to the tradition of this character. But one of my sort of good friends who works on Arthurian material for her PhD has also pointed out to me that like, the Arthur that we kind of talk about and know about when we're talking about the character in, in modern media is such a composite and was reinterpreted and used and thought about and invented and added onto by the French and by Germans and by, you know, the Dutch and the Spanish. And he gets used in Icelandic material. He gets used all over the world. So basically just trying to talk about the historical Arthur kind of misses how important and powerful he is. He ends up being as a character. Right. So like for me, what what I do as like a literary historian more is trying to think about and look at like how the character and the themes and the other characters and, you know, the, the world, the canon of Arthurian legend, you know, gets utilized because we do, we can trace that. There is a history to that. And we can cite, you know, textually like so-and-so is citing so-and-so or like, oh, Chrétien's romance feels a lot like this Welsh romance that maybe or maybe not, you know, is a basis for it. Let's read them side by side and talk about the differences, that kind of thing. Hmm. Did I answer your question? <laughs> I think you did. Yeah, I think, cool. I, I mean, I, I think that answers my question in the sense that I think the answer seems to be it's murky. It's so, <laughs> yeah, it's super murky. I actually, this is fun. So when I was in England a couple of years ago, I, I visited Cornwall and went to Tintagel, which is where you know, according to Geoffrey of Monmouth, there's like, this is where Arthur was conceived. And there's this is where the sort of Merlin figure like intervenes and helps Uther Pendragon, you know, get to sleep with and, you know, maybe slightly coerce Igraine, the Duchess of Cornwall. And then they have this magical, you know, child called Arthur. And that's where Arthur comes from. Mm -hmm. But you can visit, you can visit the sort of castle and the cave that's Merlin's cave. Mm. And, you know, the, the English National Trust, 
you know, they would really like to sell you tickets to go see there. So, you know, they've got like a little historical exhibit and they've got guidebooks and pamphlets and everything. But I just revisited the website and actually they've done a really good job. And I would credit this to the, the academic who they have definitely, you know, gotten to write their material on the website. Shout out to Oliver Pedel. But he, he did, you know, the website is now really good at talking about how this is the area that's associated with Arthur in this text and his conception. Here's the history behind it. It was probably an Iron Age settlement and then it was abandoned and then it was, you know, maybe a Roman settlement and then it was abandoned. And then somebody in the 14th century who was fascinated by the story of Arthur came and built a castle here. Mm, interesting. Right? So the story reinforces the history, reinforces the story, reinforces the history kind of thing. Right. Okay. So why do you think these Arthurian tales have so much cultural staying power? That's such a good question. Particularly, I think, I mean, in England, especially where he's sort of a a figure of national identity, but the stories are popular elsewhere as well, as you mentioned. So what, why do you think that people are so into King Arthur? Well, there are a couple of different versions of Arthur that people can be into. And it really, I think it depends a lot on like what the story or what a certain writer or thinker is interested in in talking about. So sometimes Arthur is, you know, in the in the Sir Gawain and the Green Knight poem that is the basis for this movie, in the poem, he's a young king and he hasn't really been tested yet. And he's still, it's like the the concept of Camelot and the concept of his court, I guess it's it's Caroleon in the poem, is full of kind of promise and and hope. And then in that sense you think, okay, Arthur's got this sort of glow about him about like achieve achieving sort of greatness but he hasn't done it yet and there's a lot of anticipation there's a lot of like maybe he's the savior we need you know the once in future king kind of he'll come in our darkest hour and he'll he'll kind of redeem or save us and there's a really long tradition of looking for like savior characters or redeemer characters like that mm-hmm. you know not just in wales but but throughout you know human history but then there's you know, a different version of Arthur where his court has failed to live up to that promise and is a little bit, you know, tragic, a little bit corrupted, a little bit, you know, imperfect. And that lets us talk about how the there's a sort of melancholy beauty to like not living up to your promise or not being able to be as good as you want to be. Hmm. And I feel like that's where Chrétien de Troyes Lancelot stories kind of come in or some of the quest for the Holy Grail material, because People are like, we want to live up to this incredible quest, but we are inevitably going to fail. Lancelot is a sinful human. He just can't stop doing adultery as great as he is. Yeah. <laughs> or then, you know, some writers and some some versions of the story, there it's like it's a really it's a really rich sandbox to play in, the Arthurian sort of concept. Mm-hmm. So you can invent you can invent a new knight, you know, you can invent a self-insert character and name him Lancelot, and then he's you know, now part of the story, but he didn't, you know, he was, he was invented or you can invent a new knight and call him Galahad and say, Oh, he's perfect. He's the most pure, most holy, most achieve, like the knight who can achieve the grail basically. Mm. But I've always had a really big soft spot for Gawain because he's one of the ones from like the way back version where he might've been an original sort of Welsh myth or folkloric character Mm. back when he was called Gwachmai. And he's got some, sort of cool magic powers in that tradition and in those sort of stories. Hmm. But he keeps getting overshadowed by the new guys. 
Right. <laughs> it's like if you've ever had a superhero team where if there's like the one superhero and then they keep adding people to the team who are cooler than him. <laughs> I feel like that's Cowan in the traditional story a little bit. Interesting. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. I should also mention that my cat is named Merlin. What? Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. What did you, what were you reading or watching when you named your cat? Well, when I was very little, my parents had a cat named Morgan. Oh. And she was like named after Morgan Le Fay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then so when that cat passed away and we got a new cat, we thought it was like thematically appropriate. Yes. To have Merlin. Well, it is. Absolutely it is. Yeah. And I should also I should also say like I didn't necessarily get into studying this because my name is Morgan, but it didn't hurt, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> it doesn't hurt to like feel a little bit of personal, you know, ownership or involvement in what you're working on. And I can say this as a Lewis, there's like not that mm -hmm. many like Morgan characters, right? And I feel like no, as a no. as a Lewis growing up, anytime you would hear about a Lewis character, it was like, whoa. There's a Lewis mm -hmm. character. Mm -hmm. There's a Lewis character. That's me. <laughs> yeah. 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 I got that out of, I get, I get that feeling out of reading 12th century Welsh history. Mm. I see a Morgan, I see a name and I'm like, ha, ah, I got, I got one. Yep. 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 I should have gone into French history. Mm, you should have gone into French history. Yeah. <sighs> Lessons learned too late. <laughs> well, no, there's still time. You can pivot. You can just design pivot. a whole new project. Yeah, I could. <laughs> Um, anyway, <laughs> back to the film, sure. Green Knight, and, totally. and comparing it to the original story from the medieval period. What are, what are some of the ways that the story in the film differs from the original story in the manuscript? Oh boy, <laughs> this is my favorite part. I'm sure there are lots, so we don't have to go through like everything. No, well, it would it would be... It would be a different podcast if we were going through every single little change. Yeah. And people have done that. You know, there there is a there's an article out there, I think, for Vox that I found while I was sort of prepping for this. Yeah, I think it's a, a, a piece from July by Alyssa Wilkinson for Vox that's talking about how exactly the movie and the poem are different. And I want to kind of be be upfront about the fact that the movie advertises itself as like telling this ancient story of King Arthur's court that's like a super well-known story. And that is true to an extent, but it is very specifically one poem that it's drawing on. Right. And that poem is part of a huge canon of Arthurian material, but it's not like everybody knew. It's not like everybody was retelling, telling and retelling this one version of Gawain's story. Mm. Gawain, the character shows up in a gazillion stories and this is only one of them and it's only like you know he has encounters with mysterious warriors a couple of times there's the carl of carlisle i think is, is a name that i remember reading but you know we're talking specifically about one poem when we're talking about this movie and this poem and like the movie doesn't necessarily tell you that as explicitly as i think it should okay right yeah i think one of the biggest changes that I noticed kind of right away is what they have done with Gowan's character. So when I was telling about, when I was sort of summarizing the movie, I mentioned that he's a young, inexperienced sort of kid at the beginning. 
and the movie is sort of his coming of age or like his his development into into being an adventurer and in the poem it's completely the opposite where he already has a reputation he already has some skills he's known he's like a well-established capable guy hmm. and this is kind of what i was talking about where i was like that tells us a little bit about david lowry as the writer because he made that explicit decision to reverse those characteristics and he talks about it in an interview where he was like yeah he was thinking about his own sort of failure to launch is the phrase he uses where he was like i was an hmm. older than i should have been guy living at home not doing anything with my life and he wrote that in and gave that to gowan and i'm like okay that's a valid choice as a writer as an artist you can manipulate your source material and tell the story you want to tell that's fine but it has sort of a ripple effect on the rest of the story that i'm not sure i like <laughs> interesting yeah interesting i was also wondering i noticed that and i think we might talk a little bit more about this later but the character in the film also seems to really struggle with ethics right <laughs> he's yeah he's not a particularly morally upstanding character. Nope. At the start of the movie, he's not even sure he's going to like keep his word at all about going to meet the yeah. Green Knight. And he has to be persuaded by King Arthur to do that. And he like treats his girlfriend really badly at one point. Yeah. Throughout the movie, really. Yeah. Yeah, there's a scene. I thought that, anyway, this is a bit of a, probably too much detail about the movie. But there's that one scene where she was like, would you still marry me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking of. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Okay, yeah, yeah. Would you still marry me even if, you know, even though I'm a I'm a commoner sort of thing? Yeah. And and he just doesn't say anything. He just doesn't say anything. <laughs> and I was like, that's like one of the worst answers you could give is say nothing yep. <laughs> to that yep. question. Correct. Yep. Yeah. And like, no, no, no shade to Dev Patel because he did a fantastic job. I think like the only reason I sympathized with the Gowan character in the movie was because I find Dev Patel like so compelling to watch and he did such a good job with like the shithole character that he was given. Sorry, like David, I'm, I'm <laughs> sorry that I think your your writing of this guy kind of I don't know, like he made him so he made Gowan quite passive. Hmm. He doesn't like the the character in the movie doesn't have a lot of self sort of awareness or he's not very like yeah he doesn't know who he is yet he's trying to figure out who he is hmm. and i think you know we we watch that today in the movie and go okay that's a familiar narrative arc of like watching somebody figure out who they are but is that the only way we can identify with somebody or like sympathize with them if they are yeah. sort of pathetic and then struggling and then become somebody better wouldn't it be also interesting, and I feel like the poem is a great like place for this, is to watch somebody who is, who thinks of themselves in a certain way and has a clear self-concept and like knows who they want to be or knows kind of what they're trying to be, has a reputation, watch them struggle to uphold that. Hmm. Because I feel like that's really relatable is to be like, I think of myself in a certain way and now I'm being challenged to continue to live up to that hmm. so in in sir gowan in the green knight in the poem gowan's reputation is for courtesy hmm. he has the best he has the best manners of anybody at arthur's court interesting he is so diplomatic he is he is so respectful he knows how to like negotiate a, a sort of conversation 
in a way where everybody comes out of it not offended and feeling respected and feeling listened to, but also, you know, the king's honor is preserved or something. Hmm. And so in the poem, when the Green Knight shows up and issues his challenge, it's sort of a challenge to Arthur, or it feels like a challenge to Arthur to be like, are you man enough, king enough, brave enough to take this risk? And in the poem, Arthur has to decide, you know, I'm the king. If I take this risk and fail, or if I take this risk and die, my kingdom is in trouble. And also my reputation is in tatters, but I'm the king. I can't not take this risk. I have to be as great and as bold and as, you know, impressive as my reputation is. So Arthur is stuck, right? Arthur's in a bind. And in the poem, it's Gawain's quick thinking and also instinct for courtly politics that shows he, he's going to step in and say, I'll take this one. This one is one I can do. Hmm. I can save, I can let you save face, Arthur, and I can, you know, satisfy the supernatural challenge here. So it's a very self-motivated decision to take the challenge to play the game, to sort of engage with the Green Knight, as opposed to in the movie where it's Gowen being pressured into it by Arthur calling him out and saying, you know, his concept of honor requires this, which is so different. It's so different to have it be pressured from above versus something that he that he chooses and decides for himself. Right. That is very different. Interesting. And I found that a lot, like, like throughout the movie, it seemed like the, the person that they wrote Gawain to be wasn't able to, or was like struggling to make choices to like, basically, you know, participate in his own adventure. And in the poem, he's a full participant. And that matters a lot when you get to the castle with the lady. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think basically every sort of of the stages of his quest up until when he's at the Green Chapel, sort of things happen to him. He gets robbed by yep. some kids. By some kids. <laughs> yeah, he sort of happens on a ghost who asks him for help. Yep. And he, he, I guess he makes the choice to help, but... Yeah, that's true. He gets there. Sort of. <laughs> yeah. He shows up at this castle and things happen to him kind of against his will at the castle. Kind of against his will at the castle. Or it's left very unclear. Yeah. Yeah. And then, basically, I feel like the only... Yeah. It's a good point. The, the main choice he makes is at the end when he chooses to accept the Green Knight's game. Right. And I guess after having not chosen much of everything else, that choice feels more significant, which might be why the filmmakers went for that. It's like, we're going to make this a bigger deal when he finally admits and at the end is like, okay, with his, he, he, he accepts his fate. But it confuses you as an, as an audience because you're like, yeah. this, there, there is no reason. The way that the movie reads right now to me, it really makes no sense why he's playing along or you don't get why he's playing along if it's just from imposed from outside. So one of, one of the other differences that kind of, I feel like matters the most and, and maybe you're planning on bringing this up later, but one of the differences that matters the most is that they've introduced all of these other little things that happen to him on the road mm -hmm. as he's like the, like you just said, he gets attacked on the road by the kid and like loses his, what does he loses his horse and his armor or something or basically all his stuff pretty yeah, much. Yeah. Like all his stuff. Yeah. And the, uh, 
sort of encounter with the mysterious ghost of the saint or the girl with her head cut off, which I guess is foreshadowing for heads getting cut off or thematically something about heads getting cut off. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, these things, he, he does have sort of to travel in the poem, but the poem doesn't have any of those sort of encounters along the road. Mm-hmm. Most of the drama happens when he's there at the castle Haute Desert, which is where Lord Bertilac and Lady Bertilac welcome him and allow him to rest and recuperate. And it's all like interpersonal drama and, and those more of the same Gawain trying to be courteous and negotiate like a fraught social situation, mm-hmm. which I was really looking forward to seeing on the big screen and like all of the sort of glances or comments or, you know, it's it feel it feels very like richly sort of of I don't know like romantic and 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 there's a lot of underlying like you know subtext or undercurrents or whatever while he's there but it's not really a swashbuckling adventure which I guess is what they were trying to make for the movie but they took away they took away some of those more you know word heavy scenes right and they gave us just your your sort of average concept of oh the middle ages sucked and the roads were dangerous and you would be attacked going out your front door kind of thing right that's definitely that's definitely a change although on the swashbuckling topic i do like that this didn't just become an action movie no that's true yeah that's true there is obviously some violence that happens in the movie but when i was sitting down to watch it and i asked my girlfriend who you know hannah if she wanted to watch it too and she was like I don't know if I want to watch it because she thought it was going to be a medieval fighting movie, no. essentially. Yeah. And I think we were both pleased that that's not what the movie became. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm glad too. Like, I'm glad they didn't in, in, like introduce a duel scene or something. I mean, they kind of they have some fighting, but some of the stuff that didn't bother me, which is weird. One of the things that I was like totally fine with was the fox. And also the giants that he runs, he like runs by a field of giants briefly because those things are totally textually based. Hmm. There is parts in the poem that you can totally point to where you're like, there's a line that mentions like walking through the wilderness, wilderness of Wirral with Etains and, you know, that's a word for giant. And there's like, you know, he's traveling through this will, this fantasy wilderness. Of course he runs by some giants or like there's a scene where the Lord Bertilac at the castle is going hunting and he goes hunting for three different things over the course of Gawain's stay. And one of them is a fox. So like, even though it didn't show up in the movie quite the way it shows up in the poem, the fact that there is a fox and it's a little bit supernatural, that was fine. I was cool with that. Hmm. But I was so, I was so sad that the movie didn't keep the other game. There's another, there's another game in the poem in addition to the beheading game. And it's a game of hunting and then exchanging what you sort of, win and the game is played when Gawain gets to this castle and he's he's been invited to stay the lord of the castle says oh you know you're welcome here relax it's not that far to the green chapel you'll be able to make it just fine and while you're here relaxing I'm going to go hunting for three days and every day when I come home I will bring whatever I win while I'm out in the in the field you know hunting and I'll give it to you And in exchange, you should give me anything that you gain or anything that you win during your day. And this is another sort of reciprocal, you know, 
like with the Green Knight, like with, you know, some of the other themes of the poem, this back and forth or this like reciprocity thing. And it just, it, it's another sort of layer of, of carefully sort of nuanced, you know, in the, in the poem. But while Gawain is chilling kind of at home and the, the Lord is out hunting, this is where the sort of, I don't know, sexual sort of tension ramps up in the, in the poem because the lady of the castle kind of comes on to Gawain fairly strongly and starts making, you know, advances towards him in a flirty way, but in also a little bit of a, you know, it's a little bit of pressure. And Gawain has this reputation for being so polite and being so courteous. He's like, I cannot offend her by turning her down too strongly because I am, you know, reputed to have my like this this reputation with with handling ladies that's true like he he in the the rest of arthurian literature and i would love to get into that gawain has this reputation for being good with women and not just like you know a, a playboy but also like he he's good he's good with handling you know the the sort of social maybe stakes of this as well and every you know woman apparently in all these different poems or stories there are a lot of them who are very into into him hmm. and so in the in the movie you know we can't have our inexperienced clumsy not that self-possessed gawain isn't equipped for for negotiating this but in the poem he figures out a way to sort of not offend his host by sleeping with his wife not offend the wife by saying get out of here. I hate this. And also sort of stay true to himself because he ends up, they, he like kisses her on the cheek or something, or like he figures out a way to. Yeah. And, and then because of the rules of the game, when the Lord of the castle comes back at the end of his hunt and is like, what did you get? What did you get today? Here's my, you know, whatever I've killed while I've been hunting. Gawain plays along with the game and kisses the, the Lord on the side of his cheek or he, he kisses him basically. And actually, I don't know if they specify cheek, I don't remember, but that he kisses him in full, like in front of everybody. And there is so much there about, you know, public displays of affection or, you know, kissing obviously had different maybe associations in the past. We can't, asso can't assume that every kiss was an erotic kiss or a romantic kiss, but it's also true that, you know, there's a certain undertone to it because the lady of the castle definitely wants to sleep with Gawain and if he plays the game he's gonna have to sleep with the lord right right if he like carries it all the way to its logical conclusion Carolyn Carolyn Dinshaw wrote an article about this basically being like the logical extension of the of the kissing game is that Gawain and Lord Bertilak have sex I haven't read it in a couple of years so she might say other stuff than that but mm -hmm. that was the main just the main gist that I remember mm -hmm. and it's like oh 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 wow that is more that's heavier than than we really get from the from the movie right but also the movie makes it the lord kissing gawain and gawain not participating at all and the movie makes it lady bertilak kind of coming into his room and having sex with him it looks more or less against his will or you know mm -hmm. ambiguously he's kind of just there passively yeah certainly not very consenting no no and that is so different from the poem and he does it i think also doesn't he do it because she's promised him the magic girdle or like it's sort of to get his 
protection back or something? Yes. I don't think we mentioned this earlier. So so in the movie, his mother, who is Morgan Le Fay, mm-hmm. or I, th- I think it's at least like implied that she's Morgan. Yeah. Somebody magical. Somebody magical and outside the norm- normal run of the court. Yeah. She, before he goes on the quest, she gives him this green girdle and says, like, no harm will come to you while you're wearing this girdle. But then while he's on the quest, it gets stolen from him when he gets robbed by these kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then when he gets to this castle with this lord and lady, the lady has it or another one? It's not really clear what has happened there. It's not really clear. But she has the same kind of thing and it'll protect him. And so she gives it to him in exchange for this sort of sexual favor. Exactly. And like it makes the it makes the sexual encounter between the two of them feel very transactional. Yep. Which is also like not cool. Really? Maybe? Right. Anyway, but in the poem, he has the girdle. He doesn't get the girdle from his mother. His mother's barely in the poem. And that's also something that David Lowry says in an interview he like did on purpose because he was thinking about his own relationship with his mother. And I was like, that is also fascinating, sir. Thank you for, for that. But but the sort of feeling that she's, or Morgan Le Fay is doing this to kind of get Gawain to stop living in her basement, you know, is, is the sort of, she, she needs him to go off on an adventure. So she constructs this adventure for him. Right. And she like constructs, constructs this lady Bertilak, who's played by Alicia Vikander, same as Gawain's girlfriend. So she's like summoned this, fantastical temptress who looks just like her son's girlfriend and like gives him the girdle that she gave him. So it feels, it feels very contrived, but also it's more confusing in the, in the movie that you don't, you don't know, like, is it the same girdle? Is it a different girdle? Where did that come from? Right. You know, is she a real person? Is she his imagination? This kind of thing. Right. I will say in the poem, it is all more or less. It is all a trick. Mm-hmm. Morgan Le Fay is behind everything. There's a line kind of at the end. It's a little bit like deus ex machina, like, wow, here, and, and it was all a dream, you know, but it, it is Morgan Le Fay doing it all. And I actually had, I had the, the pleasure and, you know, whatever of walking into an undergrad medieval lit classroom and having my professor having written on the board, Morgan did it <laughs> to like... <laughs> have the grand reveal of of the poem which i still think about all the time i'm like that was i'm glad that i got along with that professor because in a different (laughs) life that would have been mortifying right but no i thought it was cool (laughs) it was funny (laughs) at the time (laughs) yeah i was gonna ask you about the end of the movie and the end of the story because that was to me having like read a summary of the manuscript story which you can tell me if the summary holds up the endings are very different. The endings are very different. Yeah. Where in the film, it just sort of, it, it, it has a very abrupt and ambiguous ending where you don't actually know what happens to him, to what happens to Gowan. Yeah. In the manuscript story, he essentially survives because he's, he's wearing this girdle. And as you said, it's revealed that this is all sort of a trick put on by Morgan. The, the Green Knight is actually the lord of the castle he had stayed at previously. Yep. And there's some some themes about honesty and, and that sort of thing where, yeah. You, yeah. He, you know, he, had, he didn't reveal he had received the girdle at the castle. Right, exactly. As part of that game. Yeah, he hadn't properly played the, the game of like, you give me what you get and I give you what I get. 
but he's forgiven for this by both him and then when he returns to the other knights, they also forgive him this minor act of dishonesty. But the endings are very different. I was going to ask you what you think of the, the change of the ending. And maybe why do you think the director chose to make a pretty significant change to the ending? Yeah, absolutely. So the endings are super different. And I think it all comes back to having changed that a few those few fundamental details about who Gawain is and what he's trying to learn mm-hmm. during this quest. So in the original ending, in the poem's ending, he has failed to live up to his own high standard for himself. He's failed to be completely honest. He's failed to be completely honorable. And the moral of the story is basically his failure. You know, he 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 has not fully sort of lived up to his own name as this this honorable knight. And so he sort of he feels like a failure because he doesn't get his head cut off. First of all, he survives the the green knight trying to chop his head off, not once, not twice, but three times. And each of those times is for one of the exchanges that he was going to have or he, he had with the Lord of the Castle, with Lord Bertilak. The first time, because he gave Lord Bertilak the kiss very honestly, very honorably, the blade does nothing to him. The second time, same deal, the blade does nothing to him. The third time, the blade nicks his his neck a little bit and like gives him a little bit of a cut. And he's like, oh, but I survived. You know, I, I, I didn't get my head fully cut off. I just got this little bit of a cut. And the Green Knight explains, yeah, that's because you didn't surrender the girdle that my wife gave you. And if you had given that up and told me about it up front, fair and square, you wouldn't even have, I wouldn't have drawn blood at all. Right. So I feel like really maybe the moral is communicate better. But anyway, or just like be, be upfront in your communication. Anyway, but in the, in the movie, mm. it I think really is strongly signaled that he not only is killed, but he's killed and it's a good thing. Or he's like, it's, a, it's meant to be sort mm. of a victory that he does not fail. He really is faced with this hard choice about whether to give up his sort of charmed life or not. And he chooses to give up his, his charmed life and that that is meant to be a victory. That's meant to be a success. Mm-hmm. So he, he doesn't feel failed the game at all. He's actually kind of succeeded. Right. And I feel like the big difference there is, is because in the movie we start with him being a failure and rise, he rises through the, through the course of the film, he grows, he develops, he gets stronger and then ends up as like, he gets to win basically, yeah. even though it feels like a, sort of tragic victory because he is dead but he doesn't have he doesn't have to live his life in a sort of cursed or charmed way like we have he has this vision there's this this scene where he has a vision of what his life will be like if he survives like at the moment of the beheading he has this vision where he's like what if i live what if what would the rest of my life look like and it you know is full of him getting older and his girlfriend he marry or he marries somebody else and then he ends up being this like embittered old king, kind of surrounded on all sides by, you know, what are they, invaders or, or rebellion or something. Yeah. And he's like, I'm not going to choose that. I'm going to choose to die here. Which also, I don't know, you don't really understand why he thinks that's the better choice or like why there's this feeling of um, doom over the whole movie. Yeah. I feel like. If, if this were a film podcast, if this were more of a film podcast, I would love to talk about like the choice of tone in the movie and why it's so grim. It's suspenseful and it's sort of full of like artistic, maybe kind of horror or, or you know, artistic suspense and melancholy. But like it's such a grim 
feeling throughout, right? Did you get that? Did you and Hannah feel that? It is grim, yeah. I, I felt like it was, the whole film felt eerie, was my, yeah. my impression. It felt very eerie, and it also felt like a very unfamiliar world. Yeah. I wrote this in my in the questions I sent you. It almost feels like, like it's almost like a Star Trek sort of adventure, yeah. where the character is like, adventuring through a land that they have no familiarity with and weird stuff happens to them, like encountering giants, encountering ghosts, things that you wouldn't expect in your normal life. The magical camera or the scientific camera thing that the lady shows him in the castle. Yeah, which that's, we don't need to get too much into that because that's kind of (laughs) off topic, but I did not understand why that was even in the movie. (laughs) Oh man. Oh man. I, I mean, so I totally agree. I think, I think that was clearly a choice that the filmmakers made where they were like, we're going to have it be eerie. Eeriness is what we're going for here. And like this feeling of creeping sort of suspense or this feeling of creeping sort of like wrongness. And I think that's actually really effective Mm -hmm. when it is paired, (laughs) when it is paired in a contrast with something different than it so like i one of the one of the best things about the poem is that it balances two different worlds right it balances the courtly world of king arthur's court or the courtly world of the castle co desert with with the outer sort of wilder eerier unfamiliar world hmm. and in particular because this is set at christmas time so Arthur in the beginning is having a festive court and it's full of noise and color and, you know, festivity and, and everyone's having fun and exchanging gifts and there are minstrels. And like, that's the world that the Green Knight bursts into and interrupts and everything falls silent. Hmm. And I feel like there needed to be a brighter, more jolly, more sort of merry world or, or scene in order for the interruption of the unworld, otherworldly to matter. Hmm. Otherwise, it doesn't. It doesn't matter if it, if it if it's all one eerie set. Like if if Gawain is living in an eerie sort of unfamiliar world, and then he just spends his whole time in an uncom- eerie unfamiliar world with no respite, then it does. It stops. It stops being effective. Yeah. So like when he got to Lord and Lady Bertilac's castle, and he's being greeted by you know Joel Edgerton and Felicia Vikander or whoever, I really wanted that to be a contrast with the with the tr- the struggle of his journey up to that point you know i really wanted them to be more welcoming and more and you know and and lord bertilac the character kind of kind of is he has a certain amount of welcomingness and 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 warmth to gawain and there's some nice like there's the lighting changes a little bit and gets a little warmer while he's there but you know in order for there to be that sort of creeping sense of eeriness that that sort of interrupts or sort of sneaks in around the edges of an otherwise friendly in- encounter. I just, don't, I just don't think it, it works as well. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. So thinking less about the film as a representation of, or an adaptation of this story, yeah. and thinking more about it as a representation of the medieval world, obviously much of what happens in this story is fantastical yeah. and not not based in the reality of the medieval world. Yeah. All the ghosts and giants and, and all that stuff. But there are a lot of scenes that are intending to represent something about medieval life, right? We see these scenes in in town, in court, in castles and that sort of thing. What did you think about how this film represents 
the medieval period. And I mean this not just in terms of like the physical look of these places, although you're welcome to comment on that as well, but also as it relates to how people relate to one another, culture, yeah. gender norms, that sort of thing. Absolutely. Oh yeah, I'm 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 really excited about this because there's so many things I would like to say, and like I don't know if I'm even going to remember all of them because I had so much that I could say to this question. This is obviously yeah, it's a big question. Oh, but it's it's so exciting. It's like there's you could have an entire another entire hour of 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 content here just on this question alone. So I feel like the first thing that I really want to address is how the movie chooses to cast different characters of different color, like characters of color, actors of color, mm -hmm. and what, what it is or is not kind of saying about race in the Middle Ages. Because that's a big, that's like an, a big important question right now. Academics and, and scholars have done a lot of work and found a lot of evidence or been able to substantiate the idea that like England, even at this period, was not monoracial, right? Like we talk about it in different ways in the past and we don't have the same they don't have the same categories of like black white you know uh, indigenous asian whatever the categories are different right. in the medieval period but anywhere that the roman empire reached to there could be there there are you know skeletons grave sites evidence of people living who were not you know blonde hair blue-eyed white people right and we ha we have evidence for that like the ivory bangle lady in york and like some of the, um, you know, grave sites around the, the Welsh coast. And, you know, so after what, like after the first or second century, England could have had people in it who are not just like blonde hair, blue eyed white people. So I really liked actually that the movie went ahead and cast Dev Patel. And I think uh, Samita Chowdhury, the actress who they, who they cast to play Morgan Le Fay right. are both actors of color, which is, which is good, you know, cause the a modern American public is uncomfortable with that in a medieval setting mm -hmm. but it's actually fine mm -hmm. or it's more fine especially when we're talking about this which is is definitely a fantasy story on the other hand i didn't love the fact that the morgan lefay character was a woman of color and also so clearly outside the christian mainstream because that like what the Middle Ages did have, even though they didn't have the same sort of racial categorization that we have, was they had concepts of religious categorization. Hmm. And so you could be, you know, your your sort of race and your religion were so deeply intertwined. And there has been incredible work done on that by people like Geraldine Hang. And, you know, it matters that what the, what the medieval period would have seen when they looked at somebody, you know, might have been the color of their skin. But it also would have been what religion they were. And if people were Christian, you know, then you have the, the characters in medieval sort of saints lives or history. The characters who are foreign but Christian are equally valuable, equally accepted. You know, the, the, the concept of like the three kings who visit the nativity in, in the Christian sort of story of Jesus's birth. One of those kings or all three of those kings actually are like from afar, they're from the Orient, um, but one of them is is usually depicted as black. Hmm. And so what matters is like their religious categorization. So having the characters of, of color and the actors of color in this movie was good, I thought, but then it was weird that they were also still other or also still like made other right. explicitly. So what I kind of would have preferred would actually have been to have like 
Arthur and Guinevere also be, you know, of a of a sort of e- equally sort of racially other to our American kind of viewer eyes. And that way, the religious contrast, the religious contrast in the movie between the Christian sort of or the you know unmarked mainstream and Morgan Le Fay's sort of weird magic other side of things would have been the clear division, and it would it would have, would have been that versus white characters and brown characters. Right, that makes sense, especially that oftentimes in certain types of fiction, the characters that are non-white are often the characters who have some sort of mysterious magic, and it sort of plays. In that sense, that can play to certain existing racial stereotypes. Right, right. And it matters. It like it was so cool to have Gawain, the main character, who's fully, like, in the poem, fully part of the courtly world. And, like, really, he's Arthur's nephew. He's, like, very involved and, and in, in embraced by the sort of court, accepted by the court, an integral part of the court. It was really cool to think about him being you know a brown knight i loved that like that was so good in the in the trailer and then to have it kind of turn out to be oh but actually his mother and his sort of the way that they look is because they're you know maybe more reach or or more different or something i was just a little disappointed by that Hmm. but then some of the stuff that you were asking about in this question were like how people relate to each other Hmm. So I'll just kind of repeat what I was saying earlier, what I was thinking about earlier of the movie needed to be, it has a certain gray, eerie, unfamiliar feeling to it throughout the entire movie. And maybe that's partly because they're trying to tell a ghost story, but I think it's also kind of reinforcing this idea that the middle ages were all kind of gray and muddy and cold and uncomfortable. And, you know, you could get, attacked on the road easily and everyone ate gruel at every meal everyone ate gruel at every meal and everybody's a little bit grubby and a little bit damp (laughs) and castles are cold stone and they're uncomfortable and and all of that is true to an extent because castles are really hard to heat and we didn't have central heating in the same way but in the middle ages people still absolutely like had a good time and were friendly to each other and had fun and that's what I study I study medieval entertainment (laughs) Mm -hmm. so one of my favorite parts actually in the entire movie was the puppet show thing do you remember in the town when the kids were seeing a puppet show I was like yes they got something they got something (laughs) for there to be like a little bit of color or a little bit of 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 joy in this depressing landscape and I feel like there could have been more of that, like what I was saying about Arthur's court needed to be a little more Christmassy or a little bit more festive in order for that contrast with the outside world to matter. Yeah. So, you know, I would have loved to see, and like, there's a little bit of color, like Gawain has this beautiful kind of goldenrod colored cloak that he wears. And that's like a pop of color in the otherwise sort of gray palette of the movie. Yeah. And like, I realized that the palette was a choice, right? Like they're, they're trying to evoke a certain sort of artistic you know, look. Mm-hmm. But I also think that like you can do a lot with plant dyes and you can do a lot with, you know, m- like homespun clothing isn't all necessarily muddy colored just because you don't have synthetic dyes. Yeah. And certainly it's a it's a choice, but it also seems to me I, I did a, a, a different recent podcast with another medievalist and 
she had a similar comment where I think it just seems like a broader thing about how people think about the Middle Ages. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I think it's worth pointing out is that like, so for the historical Arthur, what, what records we might have or what any kind of historical evidence of Arthur would be would be putting him sort of firmly in the fifth to seventh centuries, which we have very little documentation for, but we do know it's like an earlier, you know, if you want to use the term, and I'm not saying we should, and in fact, I wish that I'm not about to say this, but like <laughs> if you wanted to use the term Dark Ages, that is where that would be. So he's like, that would be, you know, if we had a justification for it being sort of not as developed with, you know, culture and economics and trade and art and culture and literature and whatever, whatever you might kind of think about that, that is the period when, when we have evidence for the historical Arthur. Right. Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, the poem in, in the 14th century, mm. which is like centuries and centuries later, right. where they have had really well established by this point trade roots and you know a certain amount of development in terms of culture and art and literature and like they were enjoying or they could enjoy in some of these courtly settings beautiful food beautiful fabric beautiful you know music and maybe we're meant to think of this as like it's a it's a maybe more impoverished area you know because arthur's court isn't doing so well the interview that I was reading with David Lowry also, he's, he points out that like Arthur and Guinevere in the movie, he kind of made them intentionally look a little bit ill, yeah. you know, because it's a metaphor for like the court is kind of not doing so well. It's kind of struggling or it's poorly or it's corrupted or something. Right. So there, there may be, it's, it's all part of that tone of like, it's not really in a good, in good shape, mm-hmm. but I still, I still think they could have had like a minstrel. Come on. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Especially on Christmas. Especially on Christmas. One other thing I wanted to ask you about is, and we've talked a little bit about this, but it seems to me in the original story, uh, the, the original manuscript story, there's a really strong lesson, mm. an actual, like a, trying to teach people something about honesty. Yeah. And the movie also incorporates themes about chivalry, chivalric honor, particularly in relation to keeping one's word, although there's, there's other components as well that come up, but I think honesty and keeping one's word is a, is a really strong theme. Yeah. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about these ideas, how they relate to the idea of chivalry and how the historical reality compares to the portrayal on screen. Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's a little bit, it's interesting. So I actually was was confused by this in the movie because I didn't necessarily understand what they were trying to say about, you know, what the lesson was Mm -hmm. in the movie. So like they're telling me in the, in the trailer and in the advertising, Oh, it's all about honor. And people say in the film, Oh, it's all about honor, but it felt so different from the honor, the way that I'm used to hearing it talked about in actual medieval texts. Interesting. Okay. Because the chivalry, the chivalry, the chivalry and the, I'm sort of familiar with, and maybe this is, I don't know, you know, what, what this is based on necessarily, but like the code of conduct for a, a, a knight is to be extremely Christian, <laughs> mm. is to put your sword and your, and your lance and your spear in the service of the church or in the service of God. 
and to go to mass and to love the Virgin Mary and to use your strength and your skill and your your immense, you know, killing power. Let's be honest, like knights are terrifying mm -hmm. if you think about what they're capable of doing to a, a sort of single fighter who's not on a horseback. Having a, a, a knight mounted in full plate armor with a lance is like, that's terrifying. So you're supposed to use that power and that capability for good and in particular, not misuse it, you know, to use it in the defending the innocent, defending the weak, defending women, defending God, you know, and seeking to purify yourself and seeking to live a pure and Christian life. And this, you know, this is so funny where you, you read Arthurian romances or you read, you know, the quest for the Holy Grail or you re read the Chrétien de Troyes like stories and they're, they're going to church all the time or they're going to mass all the time. They're praying all the time. And in the original Sir Gawain poem, Sir Gawain has like a portrait of the Virgin Mary on the inside of his shield. Right. So that he can look at her when he's like riding around. I think that was in the movie too, actually. Was it? Okay. That's important. I'm glad that they included that. But they don't talk about what virtue like really means. They just use this word honor yep. as a shorthand, I guess, mm -hmm. for needing to be honorable. And keeping your word, I suppose, is is definitely part of that. And that might be what the movie was trying to, to trying to say, but it really felt like they kind of reduced chivalry down to sort of one thing of keeping your word right? when it, it is a whole much bigger like concept, or it could be a whole much bigger concept that also had to do with how you comport yourself in, in society hmm. and about having good manners and having, you know, the ability to carry on a good and an entertaining conversation with your host if you're a guest like Owen is right so being able to like i don't know be be gracious i think being gracious is a big part of it and you just don't i didn't really get that in the movie at all which you said was a bigger part of gowan's character in arthurian tales originally courteousness and ability to handle social situations in a graceful way yeah exactly it's interesting though i think some of that comes a little bit later where it's like hmm. writers in, in sort of the ballad tradition or, or a later sort of romance tradition, hmm. looking at the sort of what they get from the Middle Ages, medieval period, and seeing where they can introduce their own ideas or what, what they can take and like borrow and, and turn into their, their own work. So in, in the sort of limited research that I was able to do, I, I like found you know, a bunch of different poems and even in, up into the Victorian sort of the Alfred Lord Tennyson like version of the Arthurian stuff. But even in between, I guess, like maybe some of the some of the 17th century stuff, like, I don't know, they 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 keep using the name. They keep borrowing Gawain as a concept, as a character, and then just like plonking him down into new, even more new tense situations where he has to like get married to somebody or he seems he like turns into a James Bond character where like every movie there's a different girl. And I guess this movie kind of does that too, because they completely introduce this concept of his his girlfriend character. Like Essel is I don't I have or I respect the decision to need to have a new female character because the the poem really doesn't have that many, although it has two fairly, fairly significant ones. But they completely invented her. You know, she's she's the product of of Hollywood. Right, right. Interesting. So you mentioned that one of the big things that's different is the chivalry in the medieval period. It has a much stronger religious theme, Christian theme, mm -hmm. than it does in this movie. And my impression is that that's also true of other 
movies set during the medieval period is that yeah chivalry is more about these sort of abstract values yeah than it's about christianity i was gonna ask do you think that's maybe because hollywood and not just hollywood but whoever is making these sort of representations of the medieval period finds these abstract values more relatable to their audience yes an increasingly secular audience yeah i do i mean I would, I would say a couple of things to that. And first of all, yeah, I do, which I think is fine because I don't know if, if having a really strong religious message in a mainstream movie is even appropriate um, now. And I'm not sure I would really want to, to go to one, even if it did. Sure. Right. But that being said, that being said, like, I think that we as sort of just audiences, but also maybe more broadly, cannot possibly or like just cannot wrap our heads around what religion was really like or what what Christianity really meant in the 14th century in England. It's pre-Reformation, so there's no Catholic-Protestant sort of divide. There is a ton of criticism of individual members of the clergy or individual sort of religious characters. There's a lot of satire about priests and monks being actual sinners and being extremely shifty and doing, you know, nefarious deeds. Chaucer is, right. you know, great for this, who's roughly contemporary with the the, the Pearl poet, the Sir Gawain poet, right. satirizing, you know, sinful monks and priests all over the place. And there's, there's a, a strong tradition of like anti-clerical writing and satire. But at the same time, it was such an automatic, it was such a given that everybody more or less understood and agreed with and contributed to and was was part of this community of Christianity like the the understanding of yourself as a member of your community was sort of grounded in participating in the rituals and participating in the in the cycle of like feast days and festivals and sacraments mm-hmm. and it was and I, and I think because there was this understanding that everybody was already part of that there was room for a lot more kind of irreverence or people doing other kind of weird versions of Christianity, having saints that were based in very unique local areas, having festivals or feast days or practices that are extremely local and extremely idiosyncratic and extremely like, you know, weird to the larger church because the the top down hierarchy of control from, you know, the Roman Catholic church was just not as strong. There was not really an easy way for the centralized, you know, church in Rome to like impose what was and was not correct Christian behavior, hmm. which meant they kept trying, you know, they, they had a bunch of attempts and like the different councils that met and tried to issue decrees and tried to issue different popes that tried to issue, you know, papal, papal edicts to tell people what they were doing was wrong or or sinful or heretical or whatever but at the same time in individual parishes and individual little areas into you know england into wales into ireland small communities could keep doing kind of their own thing in a way mm-hmm. and that's and that's partly why you know you get you get some frustrated church members or church authorities kind of writing about these these kooky people who keep doing who, do, who keep doing Christianity wrong mm-hmm. and like <laughs> part of the reason why there's a lot of religious writing in the in the 14th and 15th century that's all about trying to teach people what 
the gospel actually has in it because they don't necessarily know they can't read the Bible themselves. Right. So having, I guess, said all of that, what I really meant to say, what I really need to need to come back to is that like, we don't have a basis for understanding that today. Like we don't understand how they could take Christianity so seriously and also be so have such a diversity or a diversity of practice within it. Yeah. I feel like like we we have such a like in America in particular there's still such a strong like almost puritan approach to Christianity where it's very strict and 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 there's a lot of I don't know shame and punishment associated with doing it kind of wrong. Yeah. And the medieval the medieval period definitely had that but also I feel like there was more you could play with it more and that's part of where like medieval drama is very founded in religious practice as well because those were stories that everybody knew and that that's what they did that's what they made plays out of and when you're telling a story you know it's it's very easy to have a christian theme in a medieval story because people can you know kind of it's 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 more it's a it's another ingredient to be played around with rather than today in the movies where you see it and you're like oh that this is somebody trying to convert me Um, right 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 that makes sense we're coming close to the end of the questions that I yeah. had prepared, but <laughs> oh wow! I wanted to see if there's anything that you wanted to add that we haven't got to yet. Gosh, I don't remember half of what I've even said. <laughs> 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 I mean, one other thing that kind of bugged me in the scene at the beginning where um, Arthur and Guinevere are there in court and they look kind of old and ill yeah, and, and like decrepit. That's also just a big change from the poem mm. because they're there. It's meant to be like a young Arthur who's inexperienced mm. and rash and kind of spoiled, but like also, you know, ambitious. And one of the things that the, the poem is kind of getting at is that like, he's a little bit of a, he's a little bit of a brat because he's like, <laughs> I don't want to eat dinner. I don't want to have a feast. I don't want to have a Christmas feast until something amazing has happened until I have seen oh, a wonder or right. seen a Marvel. And that's when the green knight shows up because there's this Marvel that is now demanded. Hmm. And maybe it's there because, you know, Morgan Le Fay heard that and was like, okay, cool. You want, you want an adventure? I'll give you an adventure. Right. But it's, it's also like the green knight issues his challenge or issues his, his game to Arthur partly while he's kind of insulting him because he's like where's the real king arthur who's this beardless kid Mm. i can see in front of me who's just like a young man who's like you know clean shaven he's just this is a child and it's part partly that that like gets arthur all wound up and and kind of determined to accept the game and that's when gawain has to step in and go no 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 no. i'll i'll take this one (laughs) or he doesn't actually say that but he's like my lord wouldn't it be better if if I did this because I'm more dis- like disposable, I'm expendable, and you're the king, I should do this. I'm going to, you know, hmm. yeah, save Arthur from himself a little bit. Anyway, that bugged me. That just bugged me to see to see that they had so carefully chosen the opposite of the Arthur in the poem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I guess that comes back to what you said earlier about how part of the popularity of Arthurian tales is that the various characters are very malleable and easy to sort of yeah. plop into different types of stories. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah, It's true. It's true. Also at the end of the poem, not in the movie, because obviously the movie cuts to black immediately. And so we don't know what happens afterwards, but in the end of the poem, 
Gawain's a bit of a brat too, actually. Mm. He ends the poem thinking he's failed and he's not lived up to his own reputation. And he takes it out on women. He has this little rant about how terrible women are. Oh dear. He like takes a real hard, takes a real hard left turn into anti-feminism, which is so, it's like so sad, but also I feel like it's such a, you know, wounded male ego, not (laughs) actually that hard to believe. (laughs) Right. Mm, Yeah. Well, that's a, that might've been a good choice to cut that from the movie. (laughs) Yeah. I think it is. I think it was a fine choice to cut it. Like there, there are definitely things that, you know, we have enough of, or we don't need more of in, in modern cinema. And that is maybe one of them. Definitely. Yeah. But it's funny because the, the, in the poem, the rest of Arthur's court are like, oh no, it's fine. You didn't fail super hard. Don't worry. And this girdle that you have, that you are like worried about for it's like the, the source of your shame or the evidence of your shame. We're going to turn that into a symbol and we're all going to wear it. And that's going to be our new, like cool, honorable badge of, of membership in the order of the garter. And that this is the sort of invented history for the, where the order of the garter comes from, which is if you don't know, like the order of chivalry in the English (laughs) knights system. (laughs) I did not make the connection that that's the origin of the Order of the Garter. That makes sense. It's the origin that the poem gives. Like right, the yeah, poem yeah. is like, and that's where the Garter comes from. Interesting. Um, it's a mark of Gawain's shame, but also because <laughs> we're all in this cool little frat together, it's a mark of our membership. <laughs> Interesting. So I always ask my guests this question about whatever the topic is. What was your favorite thing about Ooh. film? And also, if you were the director of the film, but you could only change one thing about the film. Oh, man. What would you change about it? Oh, man. Okay, favorite thing. Mm. Oh, that's tricky. I feel like some of my favorite things were like the little Easter eggs. Like like you said about having the portrait of Mary inside his shield. As soon as you said that, I was like, oh, yeah, there are some little things like that that are embedded in the visuals that I loved, yep. um, that I thought, oh, I really, I was a big fan of them sneaking that in or, or figuring a way, figuring out a way to put that in. I don't know. Like, I really just liked Dev Patel. I really just liked watching him sort of react and kind of gaze at things. And he's got really nice hair. And like, I don't know, he was, <laughs> it's like a really, it was a good, it was a good part of the movie for me. He was good. He was very good. Yeah. He was good. One thing that I would love to change, one thing that I wish I could have changed would have been Exactly that, though, would have been him reacting to the situations where he wasn't like a participant, especially with Lord and Lady Bertilak. I would be like, I, I want to change how he reacts to those things and just make him like 50% more into it or like right. maybe 45% more, I don't know, okay with what was going on. Because he just he just looked so shell-shocked by everything that was happening to him. And I feel like Poem Gawain was a little bit more, you know, gung-ho, or if not gung-ho, then at least like, you know, not a deer in the headlights. Right. Okay. Morgan, this has been really fun. This has been really fun. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Do you have anything you'd like to share with the audience? If you want them to follow you on Twitter or any projects or that sort of thing? Yeah, I have an academic Twitter. I have to remember what my handle is. I think it's more underscore M-E or something like that. But I, I, you know, it's my public facing like academic Twitter. So I don't really post a lot, but you can go check that out if you want. Sure. But I'm also, I'm the sort of 
on the board or like one of the volunteer members of the of the board for the Celtic Studies Association of North America, which if any of your listeners want to get more involved in like actually studying Celtic studies or like communicating with and going to, you know, cool conferences or following following on Twitter for Zoom events and things, check out Kasana, C-S-A-N-A uh, on on Twitter and online. And I think the website is just CelticStudies.org. But yeah, so that that's a sort of network of academics in America and Canada or the US and Canada and all over the world. We've got members in, you know, the UK and in the Netherlands and in Japan. And yeah, it's just like a great sort of resource for Celtic studies online. Very cool. And I'll include a link to that in the, in the description for the episode. Yay. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been really fun. Thank you so much. That's our interview for today. Thank you for listening. And a big thanks to Morgan for joining me. A quick correction, if you'd like to follow Morgan on Twitter, her handle is actually at moremorgan underscore e. Also, check the show notes for some articles that talk about the existence of a historical Arthur and about the choices in the movie that differ from the original poem. Be sure to follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram. I'll put up some images of artwork from the original Sir Gowan and the Green Knight manuscript, the ones that Morgan said sometimes get dunked on, so definitely check those out. Also include a picture of my cat Merlin, because we mentioned him in the episode, and his name is Merlin, and he's cute, so... Check that out, too. You may notice that the podcast has new intro and outro music. A recent legal change means I can be absolutely sure that this music is in the public domain. So for those interested, the song is called Mystery, and it was recorded in 1919 by Paul B.S. and his Novelty Orchestra. That's the real name of the group, which I think is kind of a funny name. But I feel like it captures a fun, investigative vibe, which is kind of what I'm going for on the show, while also being historical itself, the song being over 100 years old. Also, artwork for the podcast was made by Nethkaria. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time for some more off-campus history. <laughs>